Brother Barry met me this morning at the door, and he said, we need to get you wired up. <laughs> and I thought, you know, if I was on death row, that would have a totally different connotation. <laughs> I'm glad I'm in church. <laughs> Makes all the difference. <laughs> Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, turn with me, if you will, to Second uh, Chronicles. I still believe in the Old Testament, one of the few. <clears throat> These days in the body of Christ, you know, we've eliminated 90% of the Word of God, which is one of the great tragedies. But uh, Second Chronicles chapter 29, I want to uh, look at one of the great revivals in the Bible. I know that uh, you as a church long for revival. I do too. We need that uh, visitation from God, don't we? If you uh, have time when you get home, read the previous chapter because it tells us the condition of the nation of Israel at the time of this uh, particular chapter. Ahaz was the king. He had done every conceivable abomination in the sight of God. He said he brought about a lack of restraint, meaning that uh, everybody was doing that which was right in their own eyes. He caused his sons to pass through the fire, you know, worship various gods and so on. And then we have what uh, somebody termed one of those blessed subtractions. He died. How many of you know there's some good subtractions everyone's doing? And Ahaz died, and his son Hezekiah became king. Hezekiah is one of those uh, characters that I love in the Word of God. So uh, I want to uh, pretty well stick to these uh, chapters. You don't have to uh, turn around uh, too much this morning. But the Bible tells us in verse 1, Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years of age, just a young man. He ascends the, uh, the throne, and uh, verse 2 said, he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. Let me suggest to you that revival begins when we do that which is right in the sight of the Lord. Not in the sight of the eldership, as good as that may be, or the sight of the uh, leadership, or the sight of... Uh, a denomination or a church, but in the sight of the Lord. Remember Joseph, when he was tempted there, fled. Why? Because he said, how can I sin and do this thing again in the sight of the Lord, basically? He was God conscious, even though he was away from his family, away from his home and so on. You know, he was still walking in the sight of God, and uh, he fled from that situation. So here, Again, is Hezekiah, he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. Jeremiah asked me just a, uh, about a week ago, he said, uh, what are you going to be ministering on? And I said, uh, Hezekiah, and he immediately brought up a, a uh, quote here, or not a quote, but a statement. He said, do you realize that Hezekiah did that which was right in the sight of his father David? And I had already come to that conclusion, being a few years older than Jeremiah. But, uh, you know, sometimes we don't have an earthly father that we can look to. That was the case here, obviously, with this young man, 25 years of age. His uh, father was one of the most evil kings that uh, uh, ever reigned in, uh, the, over the people of God. And so he chose somebody if you like. If you like a spiritual mentor, I would suggest to you this morning that if you don't have an earthly father that you can look to, that you go to a man of God or find a man of God, study his life, and uh, seek to be like that man, whether it's, uh, you know, Wesley or Finney or whoever it may be. But uh, here, 
this uh, young man aspired to be like David. Now, obviously, ultimately, we should aspire to be like Christ. He's the ultimate uh, one that we are to be like. But he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. Verse 3, in the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and he repaired them. On the first year of his reign, on the first month of his reign, jump with me to verse 17. Now they began the consecration on the first day of the first month. Let me put those two verses together. On the first year of his reign, in the first month of his reign, on the first day of his reign, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. That's what I call priority. This man was consumed with one thing, the house of God, and the condition of God's house. He doesn't wait until he settles into office. He doesn't wait to pass a few rules or regulations and so on, and they said, one of these days I'm going to get around to doing something about the house of God. No, the very first day of the very first month, the very first year of his reign, he tackles the problem. Again, revival begins when we take seriously our spiritual condition. We don't put it off for a week. We don't put it off for a day or a month or a year. We say, today is the day of salvation. This is the day I need to get right with God. This is the day I need to do something. I'm sick and tired of postponing it, sick and tired of putting it off, and so on. So here, again, the very first day of the very first month of the very first year of his reign, he opens the doors of the house of the Lord. The reason he opened the doors, if you go back to the previous chapter in verse 24, it says his father had closed the doors. In other words, the house of God was no longer operating. Here were God's people redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, and yet they had drifted again back into a backslidden condition, worshiping all sorts of idols. And the last thing that his father did, he closed up the house of God. The first thing that his son does, he opens the doors of the house of the Lord, and he repaired them. Let me suggest to you that doors have a twofold function. They permit access, and they prevent access. When you go home, hopefully your door will still be closed. That's a good sign that uh, nobody has broken in. But in order to get in, you need to open the door. Once you get in, that door needs to close because you want to keep the air conditioning in and so on and so forth and keep the thieves out. <clears throat> so doors, again, open and close. And The Bible says that uh, the doors of this house... As we look at this particular chapter, keep in mind that God no longer dwells in temples made with hands. This now becomes the temple of God, whose house we are, it says in the book of Hebrews. And we have doors. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, uh, be lifted up, your everlasting doors, that what? The King of glory may come in. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man open the door, there are times when the doors need to be open. There are times when the doors need to be closed. The psalmist says, I will set no worthless thing before my eyes or before my lips in another place. In other words, I'm going to close the doors at certain times. We've got to look away from evil. We've got to close the door. There are entrances into your life that the enemy uses. If your eye is single, your body is full of light. 
And sometimes we need to close again the doors of our lips or the doors of our eyes, so to speak. We need to close the doors of our ears, what we listen to, and so on. They need to be open to the voice of God. They need to be closed to the voice of the devil, and so on. And so again, when uh, we look at revival, it begins by opening the doors, and in this case, there was a reason why the doors had to be open. There in verse 5, he consecrates the Levites, and he says, I want you to carry the uncleanness out from the holy place. In other words, the house of God was defiled. The place that was to have preeminence, where God was to have preeminence, no longer had preeminence. Sin was dominant in the house of God. There was uncleanness where God Himself should have been. Again, revival is getting rid of the uncleanness. Revival is opening the doors and allowing the uncleanness to come out, what we call repentance, obviously, in the New Testament. I am amazed at uh, what goes on behind closed doors. As we look at this chapter, you'll notice one thing, that uh, Hezekiah doesn't do a thing to the outside of the house of God. The problem was not external, the problem was internal. He doesn't put a new roof on, he doesn't repair the shutters, he doesn't do this, he doesn't do that. Once the doors are open, there's only one problem, it's what's going on inside. And I found, again, in the years of ministry that uh, a lot of people live behind closed doors. They won't let you in, nor will they let God in. My wife and I pastored a church up in the Seattle area, and uh, we had a couple drove possibly 50 miles at least to get to church every week. They were a a couple that uh, were always involved. They came to the prayer meeting. They would uh, come and help counsel, do different things, and so on. In the natural, I would have said, you know, here is a couple that, you know, I would love to clone and just fill the church with a couple like this. They were dedicated. They were zealous, and so on. About two years went by, and one day I got a call from this gentleman, and he said to me, I need to come and talk to you. He sat in my office, and all of a sudden, he opened the doors. I was amazed and shocked by what he told me. He had been having an incestuous relationship with his daughter for years, but he lived behind closed doors. Somehow, something caused him the conviction of the Spirit of God to say, listen, it's time you open the doors. It's amazing, again, what goes on behind closed doors. We can all have that facade. We can all look good. We can all have our... Christianese, bless you, good to see you this morning, we can sing, we can dance, we can do all of those things, and yet inside it is a different story. The psalmist says, thou desirest truth in the inward parts. It's the inward parts that God is after. Again, revival begins when we take the courage not to listen to the voice of the enemy, but to listen to the voice of God and saying, I'm going to open the doors. I don't suggest you stand up and share all your garbage with everybody. But I do suggest you find somebody that you have confidence in, a man or a woman of God, and go to them and say, brother, sister, listen, I'm struggling with something. For years, I've been battling with pornography. For years, I've been battling with anger. For years, I've got a problem with alcohol or gambling or whatever it may be. And I need to get this thing out. I need to have some sort of accountability. Would you please help me pray with me, hold my feet to the fire, so to speak? And so here is a young man. Again, 25 years of age. He doesn't have to go and get the family curse broken off him. We won't go. 
You know, he's free. He's, uh, he knows God. You don't visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the Bible says. God made that a firm rule. It stops with a period. But showing loving kindness to those that fear God. The moment you are created by Christ Jesus, you are a new creation. All the old thing is taken care of. It should have been taken care of. Unless you're a preemie in the body of Christ. And by a preemie, I mean you're born prematurely. It takes you years to catch up. The moment you are truly born again of the Spirit of God, you are a new creature. There are no family curses and so on that this young man had to go through because his father was involved in all sorts of problems. He is free, and he knows he's free, and he says, listen, I want others to be free, and the problem is the house of God is not in the condition it should be. And so again, he consecrates the Levites, and he says, let's carry the uncleanness out from the holy place. And then he gives us a little bit of a background in verse 6 as to how things came to be the way they were. It's always interesting to know the backstory, as we say, to know what uh, led up to this. And so he says in verse 6, for our fathers have been unfaithful. Our fathers have been unfaithful. One of the worst things in a marriage is unfaithfulness. When my wife and I were in Pensacola years ago, my wife got to know a certain lady, and they were having a, uh, building a relationship together and so on. I got a call one day from the husband of this lady, and he said, listen, uh, our wives are getting together, building a, uh, a friendship. Would you have time to go out for coffee? And I said, sure. And we met, and one of the first things out of his mouth, I mean, we'd hardly sat down. But he says, has your wife told you anything about our marriage? And uh, I said, no, not that I... I know of, or I can't really remember, but he wanted me to know that his wife had been unfaithful. And even though it was years ago, his tears began to whelm up in his eyes, the pain, the hurt, because his wife had been unfaithful. They were in ministry. She'd uh, got involved with another man and, uh, and so on and so forth. It was over. Years and years had gone by, uh, but uh, I could still sense the pain. How many of you know that God gets hurt? The book of Ezekiel says, I've been hurt by your adulterous ways. Unfaithfulness is when we have or when we derive pleasure from something other than God Himself. That's unfaithfulness in a marriage, isn't it? You find another lover. That other lover, he or she, satisfies you in a way that your current relationship isn't providing and so on. And so, you know, the Bible talks about unfaithfulness. Your fathers were unfaithful. They went after other gods. They found pleasure in other things. That's where it all begins. It begins with a breakdown in our relationship with God Himself. Let me ask you this morning, what's your relationship with God like? Can you honestly say He's your first love? Not second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth, but He's your first love. That was God's gripe, if you like, with the Ephesian church, even though they had a lot going for them. I have this one thing against you. You don't love me the way you used to love me. That's God's complaint. I miss the times of worship. I miss the times of devotion. I miss the times of prayer. I miss being with you. Same thing with the Ephesian church. Listen, I'm on the outside. I want to come back in. I want to restore that broken relationship. And so he says, our fathers have been unfaithful. They've done evil in the sight of the Lord our God, and they have forsaken him. 
So again, the first thing was there was a forsaking of God. Their relationship with God broke down. They found other pleasures, other gods. Then the next thing he says is that they have turned their faces away from the, uh, the dwelling place of God. In other words, they don't want to be where God hangs out, so to speak. They knew where God was, but because they had no interest in God, they didn't want to be near where God lived, so to speak. You'll find that when people begin to drift away from the house of God, I'm talking about, you know, the, the building, fellowship, something is wrong. And you can trace it back to it's not the church so much, it's the head of the church. There is a broken relationship. They're, they're not coming anymore. They're not coming to the home group. They're not coming to the prayer meeting. They're not coming to this and that, whatever it is, they're no longer interested in the, the house of God. And then it says in verse 7, they've shut the doors and they put out the lamps. If you uh, remember the layout of the Old Testament tabernacle, the lamp, the lampstand was placed to give light to what was in front of it. And what was in front of it was a table of showbread. In other words, the Word of God needed the illumination of the Spirit of God. And when the lamp goes out, the Word of God becomes something that you are no longer interested in. The lamp has gone out. You put the lamp out. The Spirit of God is no longer quickening the Word of God to you. There's no longer any life in it. You're reading a history book instead of the Word of God, instead of that which will nourish and give you life. And some of you, maybe the lamp has gone out this morning. Maybe it's been a while since you've spent any time in the Word of God. You no longer have a hunger, a desire for the things of God or the Word of God. It's just a dry, musty old book about a bunch of Jews wandering around in the wilderness type thing. And you think, well, you know, what sort of relevancy does that have to, on my life? And yet the Bible says everything that pertains to life and godliness is found in this book. Everything. Not only had the lamp gone out, but they were no longer burning incense. <clears throat> incense speaks about our prayer life, communication. You know, when you don't love somebody, you don't communicate. Isn't that right? The communication breaks down. When we don't uh, have a love relationship with God, there's no burning of incense. The Bible says in the New Testament it was the hour of incense, which was the hour of prayer. And when people are not praying, there is something wrong. Again, you can trace it back. They've forsaken Him. That's where it all begins, a breakdown in our relationship with God, then no longer attending the Word of God, no longer reading the Word of God, no longer praying. Verse 9, For behold, our fathers have fallen by the sword. Our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity because of this. In other words, the end result is death. Our fathers have died for this very reason, obviously physical death in this case, but spiritual death in our case. When we neglect the Word of God, we neglect prayer, we neglect the assembling of ourselves together, we no longer have a desire for the house of God, and so on, we will die. We will die. I know some of you don't believe you can die spiritually, but I believe you can it may not happen overnight and so on and so forth, but I believe you can die spiritually. We need to sustain that just as we do in the natural. You don't die if you miss a meal. You don't die if you miss two meals. Like some of us should miss a meal once in a while. <laughs> but uh, 
But I guarantee if you don't eat for a month, you're pretty close to the end. Maybe six weeks if you're lucky, but uh, you will eventually die if you don't read the Word of God and nourish yourself. You will eventually die spiritually. There'll be a breakdown in your spiritual system. You'll become susceptible to disease, susceptible in this case to the strategies of the enemy, and ultimately you will die. And so that's what he says. This is the end result. Not only have our fathers died, our sons and our daughters are in bondage and captivity for this. There's a good message for the men of the, the family. As the head of the house, if you're not leading your family, your children will ultimately end in bondage. They'll go into captivity. Captivity to drugs, captivity to sex, captivity to music, whatever it may be, and so on. But they will come into captivity unless you, again, inspire them and lead. And so he gives us the background as to how this uh, all came about. Verse 8, therefore, the wrath of the Lord was against Judah. Judah, as you know, means the house of praise. And yet God is angry. We don't hear too much about the wrath of God anymore. You know, I'm convinced, I've said this many, many times, that, uh, you know, those 400 years of silence between the old covenant and the new covenant, God was going through anger management classes. Oh, better yet, he got born again. <clears throat> you know, that somehow we've got the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, the God of the New Testament has got a constant smile on his face and he can do no wrong and so on. No, he's a God that is a God that hates sin. Both Old Testament and New Testament, I am the Lord and I change not. Every doctor hates disease. Every lawyer hates injustice. And God hates sin. He knows what it's going to do to your life and my life. And he is angry with his people because they've forsaken him. They've turned their back on him, turned their back on the house of God. They've allowed the house of God to become polluted with all sorts of uncleanness. And God is angry. It's a righteous anger. It's not one of those emotional flare-ups. God is slow to anger, but he does get angry. And he's angry with his people here. And he says, he's made them an object of terror, of horror, of hissing that you see with your own eyes. In other words, the world was laughing at them. The world was hissing and mocking them and so on and so forth. One of the great tragedies with the church is that we become the laughing stock of the world because they don't see the reality of the power of God in our midst. And we need to change that. Verse 10, Hezekiah says, Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel. This young man is taking very, very seriously what he is about to do. He makes a covenant. That is a strong term. Again, an agreement, if you like, a binding oath. I am going to swear before Almighty God that we're going to do something about that. Again, this is when revival takes place individually in our life. When we make that sort of covenant, that sort of uh, agreement that, God, I'm going to give my heart 100% to seeking you, to pursuing you, to uh, whatever it is that God is calling you to do. But here he is. He makes this covenant. He says, uh, my sons, do not be negligent. Verse 11, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him 
to minister to him, to be his ministers and to burn incense. First of all, he says, do not be negligent. Don't be slack. Don't be casual. Don't sort of treat this with, well, you know, one of these days, you know, it's, uh, this isn't the day, you know, not really taking it seriously. This is the opposite of a covenant. Don't be negligent. Don't be at ease, if you like. That was the problem with the church of Laodicea, lukewarm, indifferent, neither hot nor cold, compromising. And then he says this, my sons, God has chosen you. In other words, now he takes them back to give them some sort of a vision of what they've lost, what they've fallen from. And he begins by saying, listen, you realize that you and I have the privilege of standing in the presence of God. Number one thing, he has chosen you to stand before him. I don't know if you've ever mused on that or meditated on that. Elijah, when he stood before Ahab, he says, The Lord God before what? Whom I stand. In other words, I have an audience with God the Almighty. I have access into the presence of God. The veil has been ripped, torn in two, and I can stand before him. Listen, there is no greater privilege than standing not in the presence of the President of the United States or the Queen of England or some other dignitary, but to come into the presence of the one who created the heavens and the earth. We can stand before him. Thank God that he lifted us up out of that horrible pit and out of the miry clay, set our feet on a solid rock and allowed us again to come into the courts of the king. The second thing he says is not only can we stand before him, we can minister to him. Wow. You and I can minister to God. God who is so self-sufficient, if you like. God who doesn't need anything. And yet we can minister to him. We can delight ourselves in the Lord and bring delight to God himself. When's the last time you stood in his presence? When's the last time you ministered to him? Oh, not asking him to minister to us, yes. He does that and he does it well. But he wants us to minister to him. I think so often we get our praise and our worship all turned around. It's all about what God can do for us. And we sing songs about that. And the Bible's got many psalms and so on. Yes, all of those things are true. But there's something even greater. When we focus, let's forget about ourselves and concentrate on Him and worship Him. And it's not about, you know, what He does for us. It's about the fact that we can minister to Him. What an honor. What a privilege. My father used to say that prayer is a preoccupation with our needs. Praise is preoccupation with our blessings. And worship is preoccupation with God. Praise is preoccupation with our needs. That's not always the case, but most of the time, God bless me, God heal me, God make me a millionaire, whatever, you know. And then our praise is, God, thank you for healing me. Thank you for doing whatever I ask. Thank you for making me a millionaire, you know. And worship is, God, if you never make me a millionaire, you're still worth it. It's not about me. Yes, God takes care of us. He's a father. He provides for his children and so on. But we can minister to him where it's all about him. 
It's not about me. It's not, God, give me another back rub. It feels good. But God, listen, you're worthy. I stand, I stand in awe of thee. Holy God, to whom all praise is due, I stand in awe of you. Those times when we just get lost in the presence of God, where we bask again in the majesty, all hail the power of I'm old-fashioned. Still love the hymns, but all hail the power of Jesus' name. You know, where we somehow we forget about ourselves and everything else, and it's all about Him. We get to minister to Him. And then He says, and to be His ministers. Wow. We get to be His representatives. You and I have the highest calling According to the dictionary, an ambassador is the highest calling that you can have outside of any given kingdom. And we are ambassadors for the King of Kings. We have the whole weight of the kingdom of God behind us, supporting us. We are ambassadors. We can minister for Him. We have authority to bind and to loose and so on and so forth. I mean, here is a young man, 25 years of age. And he's got this concept of what it's all about and how we've drifted away from this. We've forsaken him, the one that we can stand in the presence of, the one that we can minister to, the one that we can represent, and we're groveling at the foot of idols that we've carved with our own hands. And we've allowed the house of God to become polluted and defiled. And so he assembles his brothers there in verse 15. They assembled their brothers, consecrated them. They went in to cleanse the house of the Lord according to the command of the king by the word of the Lord. First of all, there was a consecration of the leadership. And then they go in to cleanse the house of God and notice they cleanse it according to the word of God not according to what is politically correct, not according to what somebody else may say is sin or isn't sin, but according to what the Word of God says is sin. As you know now, we are in an age when the gay community has convinced us that uh, they are just as normal as anybody else and so on and so forth. My Bible tells me it is an unnatural practice, it is a sin. And when we begin to compromise on this, the next thing we'll be compromising on is something else and so on and so forth. We cleanse it according to the house of God. It is a demon. I sat in a Mennonite congregation about a year and a half ago, and I don't often get this, but uh, I had a word, and at the end of the meeting I went back up. I'd ministered, but there was a worship time, and I said, there's a young man here that is battling with homosexuality. And I said, if that's you, just uh, come and see me or see somebody else. Before the worship time was over, this young man knelt beside me. I said, uh, are you the man? He said, yes. I prayed with him. He came up to me the next day, and he said, I want you to know this is the first day of my life where I haven't been attracted to somebody of the same sex. I tell you, it is a spirit. We are dealing again with a spiritual problem. And it has to be cleansed according to the Word of God. 
Verse 16, the priest went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it. Again, the inner part, that place that is off limits, if you like, to your wife, to your husband, to your friend, to your neighbor. You know what's going on inside. It was Ezekiel that was taken to the house of God. God told him to, you know, dig a hole through the wall, and there he was horrified to see all the elders worshiping all sorts of creepy crawly images and so on and so forth. Again, it was going on in darkness. It was going on away from everybody else. Nobody else saw it, but God allowed him to look inside. God wants to look on the inside. Thou desirest truth on the inward parts, the inner part, the place that, again, you've never opened up to. You've never told anything about the things that you're struggling with. I'm not trying to get you condemned this morning. I'm trying to get you convicted, but God wants to set you free but it takes you to open the door. So he says they carried the uncleanness out. And then they brought it out and they carried it out to the Kidron Valley. That's where the garbage dump was. Basically, the fires were burning and everything was disposed of. Verse 17, they began the consecration on the first day of the first month. On the eighth day of the month, they entered the porch of the Lord. Then they consecrated the house of the Lord in eight days. They finished on the 16th day of the first month. Can you imagine over two solid weeks of cleansing? We're not talking about a mammoth building. It's big enough, but we've got dozens and dozens of Levites and so on. You can imagine how filthy the house of God must have been. Two solid weeks, nonstop of cleansing. Thank God that in the New Testament it can happen instantaneously. The moment you and I open our mouth and say, God, forgive me, thank God it's taken care of. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses from all sin. Then they go to King Hezekiah and they tell him, listen, we've cleansed the whole house. That's what God is interested in, is the whole house. The altar of burnt offering and so on and so forth. Let me drop down for sake of time. Because once the building had been cleansed, now they are able to come and they offered the altar, the burnt offering, all the utensils, the table of showbread, Verse 18, moreover, all the utensils which King Ahaz had discarded during his reign is in his unfaithfulness we have prepared, consecrated, behold, before the altar of the Lord. Then Hezekiah rose early in the morning, assembled the princes of the city, went to the house of God, and it says they brought in seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, seven male goats for a sin offering. Listen, the blood can't cleanse what isn't confessed. They had to, first of all, acknowledge the uncleanness. Then there was an atonement made, the sin offering. You and I have to confess. We have to get right with God. We've got to respond to the voice of the Spirit of God and say, God, I want to get this thing out of me once and for all. I've struggled with it for years, if not all of my life. I've battled this thing. I want this thing out of me. Then, again, there is a sin offering waiting. Again, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses from all sin. The moment that that took place, then the, the, there is this great eruption of praise as they begin to sing. From verse 25 on, it says, they stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with harps, with lyres, according to the command of David of Gad, the, the king's seer, Nathan the uh, prophet, for the command was from the Lord through his prophets. And the Levites stood in the musical instruments of David and the priests with the trumpets. When Hezekiah gave the Order. 
It says, they sang to the Lord, began with the trumpets accompanied by the instruments of David and so on and so forth. You can read down those verses there, but you'll notice that after there was a time of uh, repentance, then there is a new song. Let me say this, that every revival almost, without exception, has produced a whole new batch of worshiper songs. You know, he put a new song, what? He lifted me out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay. He set my feet on a solid rock, but what? He's put a new song. I'm not singing the old songs I used to sing anymore because God has done something in my life. Listen, every revival brought about just a whole new wave of understanding worship, and we need to believe God for that, that God is wanting to release a new sound, as it were. And so it says, the, when the burnt offering began, all who were present bowed down and they worshiped. Verse 30, at the end it says, they were, sang praises with joy and they bowed down and they worshiped and so on. All about worship, all about bowing down, all about giving God the praise that is due Him. We can't do that when there's sin in our life. Isn't that right? There's an interesting story there in the book of Joshua. You remember when the children of Israel went in to possess the land. And uh, they had no problem taking care of uh, Jericho, which was a sort of a major city. And so they're overly confident. And they go to Ai, a little tiny village, and they get wiped out. And of course, uh, poor old Joshua is, you know, beside himself. And God says, get up off your feet. Israel has sinned. Therefore, they cannot stand before their enemies. You know, sin, again, renders you powerless when it comes to the enemy. But uh, what is interesting is that uh, they have to figure out who is the guy that committed the sin. Why is everything sort of ground to a halt? Something has happened. There's sin in the camp. And we find that Joshua gets all the people. He lines them up one by one. And it says there, he lined them up by their families. They had to come near, verse 14. This is uh, Joshua 7. They came near by their families, and then they came near by their households, and then they came near man by man. In other words, you know, it's the Ravenhill family, and then it's David, it's Paul, it's Philip, or whatever it is, and, you know, one by one. And finally, they come to Achan, verse 19, and Joshua said to Achan, my son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, give praise to him. And the poor guy can't do it. He's a sinner. You can't praise God when there's sin. You know, give glory to God. Yes, praise God. Achan, um, you're the guy, aren't you? He got nailed because he couldn't praise God. Why couldn't he praise God? There was sin in his life. We can't really truly praise God, acceptable praise, that is, because the Bible says that the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, be acceptable. Not all of our praise is acceptable unless it comes from here instead of here. So they begin to worship. Verse 36, I need to jump ahead here. Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced over what God had done. Oh, sorry, what God had prepared for the people because this thing came about suddenly. This is one of the suddenlies in the Bible. It's amazing what can happen suddenly. The moment you decide to do something, obviously the sun, suddenly here was a 16-day suddenly, but nevertheless it was a, a pretty quick turnaround. So there is... First of all, repentance, and then there is celebration, and then there is evangelism. Let's go to the next chapter, if you will, verse 1. Now Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah. He wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh. 
that they should come to the house of God in Jerusalem to receive or to celebrate the Passover to the Lord God of Israel. Let me go down to um, verse 6. And the couriers went throughout all Israel and Judah with letters from the hand of the king and his princes, even according to the command of the king, saying, O sons of Israel, return to the Lord God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel, that he may return to those of you who have escaped and are left. In other words, what has happened now is, listen, we can't keep this thing to ourselves. There is a nation out there that needs help. And the king immediately dispatches evangelists, if you like. It says couriers, but the same thing. Obviously, they didn't have tweets and they didn't have emails and all those things. And so, you know, they have to send out people on horseback going to the various villages, cities, and so on, saying, listen, something has happened that hasn't happened for years and years. God is back on the throne, so to speak. People's lives are being changed. The house of God is open again. People are being set free. Listen, join us, join us, join us. And so the couriers go again with their letters from the king, return to the Lord God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel. Do not be like your fathers, verse 7, and your brothers who were unfaithful to the Lord, the God of their fathers, so that he made them a horror as you see. So once again, he reminds them, listen, you've been unfaithful to God. Again, this is a marriage relationship. We need to understand all the way through the Word of God, our relationship to God is that of a marriage, isn't it? It's going to be the marriage supper of the Lamb. I notice every time there are announcements here, it's all about food. <coughs> I'm beginning to wonder if there wasn't a marriage supper of the Lamb, how many would be interested in going to heaven. But anyway, that's uh, beside the point. Um, sorry, I just couldn't uh, hold it back. Verse 8, do not stiffen your neck like your father's. In other words, don't be stubborn. Don't say, listen, I'll do this sometime. You know, right now I'm getting my business off the ground. Right now I'm uh, doing finals at school. Right now, you know, we're going to be married in a couple of weeks. So right now I'm preparing for this or that. You know, we're great, aren't we, at procrastination. One of these days I'm going to get serious about following God. One of these days I will I'll get rid of this thing that's been tormenting my life. You know, I'll give up my, you know, whatever it is that I'm involved in, my pornography, my anger, you know, my lust that consumes me or whatever. One of these days I'll, I'll get right with God. He says, listen, don't be stubborn. If you return to the Lord, my brothers, verse 9, your sons will find compassion before those who led them captive and will return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate, will not turn his face away from you if you return to him. There's the other side of the wrath of God. Listen, God is a God of compassion. He's a God of mercy. He will not tolerate sin in your life or my life, but the moment we turn from that sin, God will come again and show mercy, show compassion. And so this is the message that they sent throughout the nation. So the couriers passed, verse 10, from one city to the uh, sorry, throughout uh, the country to Ephraim, Manasseh, as far as Zebulun. Some laughed them to scorn, others mocked them. There'll always be those that will mock and scorn. Nevertheless, some of the men of Asher, Manasseh and Zebulun humbled themselves and they came to Jerusalem. Thank God there's always those that will respond, there are always those that won't respond. 
That isn't uh, our problem in one sense. Our problem is we need to get out and share the message. And there will be a mixed response. Even when Jesus ministered, there was a mixed response. The birds of the air came and carried off his message. He was the greatest preacher, teacher that has ever walked on the face of the earth, but the enemy also was doing what he does well. And so there'll be those that will humble themselves, there'll be those that uh, will be stiff-necked. And so we find, again, evangelism took place. The next thing, and I'll quickly get to my point here, verse 26 of uh, chapter 30, there was great joy in Jerusalem because there was nothing like this in Jerusalem since the days of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. Then the Levitical priests arose, and they blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came to his holy dwelling place in heaven. All of a sudden, God is answering prayer. Why doesn't God answer prayer? Because if I regard iniquity in my heart, God doesn't even bother to listen. God was not listening to the prayers of his people. Why? Because there was sin in their life. They were unfaithful. They'd found more joy, more fellowship, more better relationships, supposedly, with the gods of the nations than they did with the living God, the true God. But now something has changed. They've got right with God. And God is listening. Their prayers are ascending through the heavens right to the very throne room of God. That's what happens in revival. Suddenly there is an outpouring again of answered prayer because now God says, listen, I'll answer you. Call unto me, I'll answer you. And then the final thing, the next chapter is that there was abundant giving. Again, these are all the signs, if you like, of a true revival. Deep repentance of sin, incredible joy, a new sound of worship, evangelism, that desire to get out and share with others, answer to prayer. And then finally, again, as Barry said this morning, not holding on to that which, you know, we love, the love of money. It says there, as soon as the order spread, verse 5, the sons of Israel provided in abundance the first fruits of the grain, the new wine, the oil, the honey, and all the produce of the field, and they brought in abundantly the tithe of all. In fact, it says in verse 10 that uh, it talks about this great quantity that was left over. I've never been in a church yet where the pastor begged people not to give because they had such a big quantity that was left over. But that's what happened. They had an abundance. Why? Because the people were right to, with God. It's not my money, it's His money. I am not my own. I've been bought with a price, therefore everything I have belongs to God. And so these are the signs, again, of a true revival. Let me just go back for one moment before we close. He opened the doors. That's where it all began. Some of you this morning know that there are doors that need to be opened. And the enemy will do whatever he can to say, listen, you fooled them this long. You're an elder, you're a deacon, you're a, you function, you're, you're this or that, that. You know, you're well respected in church. If people found out what's going on inside that door of yours, listen, it would be all over. So don't do it, whatever you do. Fool them long enough. You can get right by just getting on your knees before God. I'm not saying you can't, but if you haven't been able to get rid of that bondage, you need to go to somebody. 
confess what your faults one to another, pray for one another, there is a genuine healing that takes place. When we begin to acknowledge that I need a brother or sister, later on Hezekiah is surrounded by Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, a whole other sort of message there, but he goes to Isaiah the prophet, and he says, listen, I need your help, buddy. You know, we are surrounded. The whole city of Jerusalem is surrounded by the enemy, and they mean business. Pray with me. Sometimes we need to humble ourselves and go to a brother or sister and say, listen, brother, pray with me. The enemy has got me surrounded. The enemy has got me in bondage. I need help. I'm willing to open the door. Let's stand to our feet this morning. Father, we thank you. The Lord, you're a God that answers prayer. The Lord, if we come, you are able to deliver us and set us free that the power of sin can be broken. I pray, Lord, this morning for every young man, every young woman, old man, old woman, whatever the situation may be, that, Lord, if they're in bondage today, that, Lord, you want to set them free. Lord, even as that word came out in song this morning, that, Lord, you want to chase away the darkness. Father, you want to set your people free, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Father, we ask for that spirit of liberty, Lord, just to engulf us this morning. That, God, you would come, you would break those chains of sin. Lord, there are people here that all their lifetime, as your word says, they've been subject to bondage. Father, that you would break that this morning. Lord, the doors would come open regardless of the embarrassment. That, Lord, they'd rather have liberty and true freedom. Father, I pray, Lord, right now move and have your way. Maybe as our sister comes to the... Oh, yeah. Just as we sing, these altars are open. If you need prayer this morning, come. You know, I used to do something when I passed it. It's maybe not uh, the easiest thing to do here, but it was uh, maybe we can try it this morning. If you're kneeling or sitting or prostrate on the floor, you will be left alone. But if you're standing, I'm going to assume that you need prayer. There was many, many times as a young man where I wanted to come forward without a bunch of people surrounding me giving me a back massage and so on and so forth, where I was coming to an altar to meet God, not to meet a counselor, but the wonderful counselor, and I just wanted to be alone. And I wanted to avail myself. When I passed it, I wanted to avail myself of that and say, listen, if you want to be alone, we will leave you alone. This is an altar where you can come and meet God. But if you're standing, I'm going to assume that you want somebody to agree with you in prayer. If that's you this morning, if you're standing, we will have somebody come and pray with you. If you're on your knees or your face or whatever, you will be left alone this morning. But as we enter into us to a brief time of worship before I turn over to uh, Brandon, just let God have his way. Amen. <laughs>